the projection is not better because um, I, I always choose my images quite carefully for these uh, for, for these uh, sermons. And um, I had an image uh, on on here which I which I got rid of on Friday because on Friday we were in London and we went to the Newport Street Gallery, which is Damien Hurst's new gallery. And Damien Hurst has lots of money. Uh, so he, he's made this gallery available. Uh, it's in quite a poor part of London, although not far from the middle. And it's free. And you can go and you can look at art and it's, and it's free. But there's also a shop. And in the shop you can buy Damien Hurst art. And, uh, and, and Rhiannon really liked one of these, I don't know if you know his spot painting. These are basically, they are just different coloured spots, and that, that's it. And he, there's a, there was a print of one of his spot paintings, and uh, limited edition, it's not, you know, it was limited edition, but nevertheless, how much was it? Yeah, was it six thousand? Six thousand nine hundred pounds, okay? So to have one of his spot paintings on your wall, six thousand nine hundred pounds. Well, no expense spared this morning. <laughs> we have one of Damien Hurst's artworks here, and um, I took a photograph of one of the books. I opened one of these books up. I know. <laughs> photograph. The book was called Psalms. And for every... For essentially, it's a book with all the Psalms, and on the opposite page of each Psalm there is an artwork. Um, I don't know if you know, you've done these artworks with butterflies, and if you could see this properly, you'd see it with butterflies. You can come and look at it later. Um, and and it, it's, it's butterflies, um, but it's an, it's an artwork for every psalm. It's a beautiful book. Yours for only seventy-five pounds. <laughs> that was the price. They're a lot cheaper than the six thousand nine hundred. Um, but I, what, what I was struck by, what I was struck by, was that um, the psalms, you know, are still resonating in, you know, in sort of, I suppose you'd say, in the secular world today. And I, don't, I think that's absolutely right, because the Psalms are amazing. Um, and probably most people don't realise how amazing, sadly, but they are amazing. And, uh, and arguably, you know, if you can pick the most amazing, uh, many, many people have picked Psalm 19 as the most amazing. Uh, and, and C.S. Lewis certainly thought so. So he said, I think it's to be the greatest poem in culture and one of the greatest lyrics in the world. And I hope at the end of this sermon uh, you will see why he said that um, and also that you will see how wonderful the psalm is. Uh, just briefly by way of introduction, um, it is designed, uh, as, as um, you know, the vast majority of the psalms were, it is designed to be sung, um, to be sung with, with instruments, um, and, and probably designed to be sung by many together. They were professional musicians, um, but I think everybody else probably joined in. Uh, it's full, as we'll see, of big themes and truths, and you can imagine the Israelites there together, singing this out and thinking about these big truths about God, these amazing truths about God. It says it's of David, um, that mainly that David wrote it. Um, he could well have written it, um, what, as we go through, you can see that it might have been the kind of thing that he would have written. But there's nothing specific in David, you know, the, the, in the psalm that would resonate with a particular event in David's history. So it may just be odd David in the sense that it was, you know, written for him. Um, so we don't know. We don't know whether he wrote it or not. But it is a very, it, it's both a very big psalm theologically 
but it's also a very personal psalm in terms of the response of the individual who wrote it to that theology. And, uh, and an absolutely fantastic psalm to, to say together and to sing together. And, uh, and we will um, probably do that. A uh, little bit, before we go into some of the details of the psalm, uh, I also want to sort of uh, give you a bit of an overview of what's going on in the psalm, I think. My, um, my mum and my sister, we, 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 we went to context here, we went to Windermere um, uh, on, well we stayed in Ambleside, but we went on Lake Windermere as well, on Monday and Tuesday, and we were very fortunate, we had um, really good weather. And we went with my mum and my sister. Um, and my mum and my sister share a passion for detective novels. Mm-hmm. And they share. So they, one of them will buy the detective novel and they'll, then they'll share it and they'll discuss it. And they'll say, you know, did you, did you, you know, spot that, you know, so-and-so? At what point in the book did you work out, you know? And, and they, 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 love, they love discussing. Well, this is a little bit like a detective novel in one sense. Because what it's doing is it's, it's gradually revealing God. There are layers here. So, first of all, you've got, um, in the first six verses, you've got God in creation. And the, the psalmist is saying that that is God speaking to us through creation and giving us, if you like, as in a, as in a, a detective novel, giving us lots of clues as to what's going on. Uh, and the big story there is that there's a God. There is a God. You look out, out there, look at creation, and you know there is a God. And that's the first level, uh, if you like, of revelation. Uh, but then there's, a, then there's another level, which is uh, the level of, of, of Scripture, the level of, of the Bible. And it's a bit like, I suppose, at the end of the detective novel, for all those stupid people who didn't really get it when they, when, you know, when they looked, at, looked at all those clues, um, there's, there's a, you know, the... the, the detective will go through it and explain it all to us. Well, in a sense, that's what God is doing. God's saying, here we are, you know, I've told you all about myself in creation, but just in case you didn't get it, here's a, here's a more specific, detailed revelation in the Bible. And that's the next bit that the psalmist talks about, verses 7 to 11. And then finally, in the last three verses, 12 to 14, there's the psalmist's response. But it is also another level of revelation because what the psalmist is saying is that in my life I can experience God. And that's another revelation of God to me. So, so levels, levels of revelation, I think. Um, I've never heard of this uh, theologian, but maybe Chris will tell me he's incredibly well known at the end. But his name is Hengstenberg. Heard of him? No? Okay. I'm slightly cheered up by that. He wrote this. The manifestation of God in nature is for all his creatures to whom it is made, in pledge of their participation in the clearer and higher revelations. So what he's saying is that you've got a revelation to everybody in creation, but then after that there comes the revelation in Scripture and in Jesus. But that is also for everybody, and that's, that's really, really important. Um, to, to make that a little bit clearer, um, I've done this. So uh, you, can, you can scribble away at this point, because I won't, I won't do it quite like this again as we go through. Um, there's, there's in Psalm 19, there's in the first six verses, the uh, revelation of God in creation. Then the Lord in his word, and then the Lord in our life. 
And you've got that parallel in Genesis. Because if you think about Genesis, in the first chapter of Genesis, you've got God in creation. In the second chapter of Genesis, you've got God, the Lord, in his relationship with Adam and Eve, the first man and woman. And he says, I want a relationship with you. I've provided you with a wonderful garden for you to live in. There's an intimate relationship between God and Adam and Eve. But he says, it's a relationship where I am in charge. I am the Lord. And if you like, just so that you know that and you can acknowledge that, there's one tree that you must not uh, eat the fruit from. And that would, in that way you will acknowledge my lordship. And of course they couldn't do it. So in uh, Genesis 3 we have the fall and we have the failure of the relationship. But in the psalm, the, the third bit is the psalmist saying, I understand you're the God of creation. I understand you're a God who wants a relationship with me. I understand that that relationship is broken. And he responds to God by saying, please, 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 you know, can you uh, restore that relationship with me? Um, so that's, that's the pattern. And, and again, you see, you see the same themes obviously coming through in the New Testament, and particularly uh, perhaps in Romans uh, chapter 10. But uh, there you have it. So let's look at um, the different aspects of the psalm. But I'm going to do it a slightly different way today, because what I want to do is I want us to say the psalm uh, as the Israelites would have done um, before we look at the section. So what I've done is, uh, here's the first six verses. This is all about God in creation. That, the wonderful creation that there is and how that speaks to us of God. And we're going to say it together. I'll read the, uh, the parts uh, not in bold and then if you respond uh, in, with the parts in bold. And as we say it, we'll think about it and then we'll reflect a little bit on it as we go through so, uh, so God in creation then. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out to all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them, he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man, runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the ends of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its seeds. I said we, um, we were at uh, Lake Windermere, um, on Monday and Tuesday, and I said the weather was quite good, and it was quite good. Um, but on the second day, when we were actually on the lake, um, it was—I suppose it was—it was cloudy. It was—it was warm, but it was—it was cloudy. And you know how British people talk about uh, the the weather when that kind of thing happens. They—they're they're always optimistic, I find. So there were two two middle-aged guys sitting next to me on the boat. And they were looking at the sky, and they were looking at it for quite a while, and then the one turned to the other and he said, the sun is trying to get out, you know. <laughs> you know well, of course the sun's not trying to get out, is it? You know, they, they, that's, it's a sort of form of poetry, of language that, that we use. We all, we, all, we all use it, you know. We don't really mean it. 
But we, we, we talk about the heavens, the sky a lot. But we use that kind of language, don't we? And, and this is, in a way, but much better phrased, this is the kind of way in which the, uh, the, the, the poet, the psalmist, is talking about God here. Um, so he's, he's talking in poetic language. But in that, there is some, there is some real truth. Uh, so I, I thought about this in terms of there's, there's poetry, there's picture, and throughout uh, there is passion. It is very clear that, um, that the, the psalmist loves the world in which he lives, but it's also very clear that he loves the creator who made that world. So first of all, he talks about the heavens. The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. And I ask myself the question, why, you know, why pick the heavens? Well, there's one answer straight away afterwards. Because the heavens are everywhere. So if you're on a South Sea island, you can see the heavens. If you're in North America, or you're in Britain, or you're in South Africa, you can see the heavens. And you can respond to the heavens in the same way. It's something that everybody sees. So I think that's the first reason why the psalmist chooses the heavens because, he, because it is universally experienced. And he makes the point that it's something that speaks to everybody. Every person in the world has seen the heavens and has seen the handiwork of God. But why also the heavens? I think because the heavens are beautiful. Why else the heavens? Because I think the heavens are vast. And when you look, particularly at the night sky, and perhaps you reflect on the stars... And whilst the psalmist didn't know how far away the, star, the stars were, he would have seen the vastness of space. We look at it and we see stars that we know are millions and millions of light years away and we cannot get our head around that distance. And that vastness makes us feel very small, I think. And it makes us understand how very big God is compared to us. So I think that's another reason. Um, there's probably a third reason. Um, the, the, the Jews thought in terms of, of the three heavens, the sky, which is mentioned, then the heaven as the second, the, the sort of night sky, the stars as the second heaven, and then God would be in the third heaven. So when you think of heaven, you think of God. So I think lots of reasons why the heavens speak to us about God. But then the psalmist goes on and says, in the heavens there is the sun. And the sun itself is magnificent. In fact, it was so magnificent that, um, that there would have been uh, some people around at the time the psalmist was writing who would have been worshipping the sun. Well, of course, the psalmist sees that that is ridiculous because the sun is made by God. But the sun in itself is magnificent. Um, it comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber. Now, I don't know if you've ever seen uh, Indian weddings, even today, and the way that the bridegroom dresses up. Well, that might give you some sense of how the bridegroom would have dressed up for weddings in this culture, in the Jewish culture at the time. And it's that magnificence that, uh, that the psalmist is, is using as the analogy. That is how magnificent the sun is, like a bridegroom leaving his chamber. Um, and it's associated with joy, isn't it? Like a strong man running its course with joy. But the psalmist sees that behind the magnificence of the creation, 
there is a creator. Now, when the psalmist wrote Bridegroom, he had no sense of, uh, of, of the way in which the New Testament would write about the Bridegroom being Jesus, but we do. And I think this is, this is one of those examples where the psalmist is writing something and it's inspired and we now see it in a slightly different way. Because we can also see the link with Jesus and the magnificence of Jesus. Because Jesus is not created, whereas the sun is. Its rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them. And there is nothing hidden from its heat. And there is a sense there too, as we move into uh, the next part of the psalm, how nothing is hidden from God either. So, uh, those, those are the, the, the things then that come through to me. That the poetry of it, the picture of it, but also the passion, the way in which uh, the, the psalmist loves the creation, but even more loves the creator. The heavens that speak to us of God's magnificence and our smallness. And the bridegroom, the magnificence of the creation, reflects the magnificence of God. Now we're going to go on to the next uh, part of the psalm. We'll do the same again. Um, the Lord uh, in his word. So I will say the, uh, the, the elements... Uh, that are not involved in, in this day The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandments of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant formed. In keeping them there is great reward. Rhiannon um, was uh, saying when we were in London um, how the policemen were getting to look young. Um, which probably says more about Rhiannon uh, than it does about the policemen. Um, but uh, we, know, <laughs> we know what she means. Uh, and indeed they are getting to look quite young. And then as the, um, as the, as the, it was the ticket collector, wasn't it, or the, the guard or whatever you call them on the... Um, on the train coming back, uh, he looked incredibly young as well. Um, and it's one of those things where people, they, they have this annoying habit of getting younger, don't they? Um, well, there was, a, there was a while before Theresa May came along where um, Prime Ministers seemed to be getting younger. Or at least, um, <laughs> uh, or at least but young enough to have children in number 10. It, it was, I, I don't know when the last time was before Tony Blair, where there were children in number 10. It was a very long time ago. Um, somebody might be able to tell me at the end. But it was a long time ago. And then, then Tony Blair came along and he had children in number 10. And then Gordon Brown, and he had children in number 10. And David Cameron, and he had children in number 10. And this was just remarkable, really, that there were all these children running around in, in 10 Downing Street. And it's the reason they sort of stopped all that. But, um, but I think... Um, 
And I think it was interesting, you know, I, and, and for me, but it, it was Cameron, because Cameron was younger than me. Right? So suddenly, you know, the Prime Minister was younger than me. And this was a bit of a shock. Uh, but I was thinking about, you know, children running around in 10 Downing Street, and, and how odd that must be for them. I know the flat is slightly separate to the, you know, the rooms where all the business is done, but, uh, but you know, you've got, you, you've got your, your dad, as it was, and your dad is also the Prime Minister. And, and I think that's a, really, that's a really strange place to be in as a, as a kid, and I don't know, I don't know how, they, um, how they cope with that particularly, but um, obviously they, they found ways of coping. Um, but in a way, um, this, this sort of revelation, this pattern in, in the psalm of, of the revelation, um, where you've got God in creation, then you've got uh, the Lord in scripture, and then you've got somebody with whom you can have a relationship. And we know that Jesus took that to the next level and actually taught us to, to talk about God as Dad, Abba. Uh, you know, as Christians, we have to find a, a way through that, a little bit like, um, you know, the, the children of, uh, of Tony Blair and so on, we have to find a way through that. Um, it's profoundly true, and yet it's also something that we have to, you know, we have to wrestle with. How, how do we give God the respect that, that he deserves as the God who created everything, and yet at the same time, you know, treat him like our dad. It's, it, it, I mean, I think it's tricky. Um, but this psalm is telling us about that and encouraging us to do it. In the first six verses, as in, as in Genesis, God is, uh, the, God, the word used for God is, is El, which is the sort of uh, the generic Semitic type word for, for, for God. And so we've got this sense of, you know, the big God. Uh, in charge of the whole world. And then in verse 7, it becomes more intimate, doesn't it? I think it does. I mean, the, the language changes, and the word for God changes. Suddenly, we're not, suddenly the psalmist is not saying God. Suddenly the psalmist is saying Lord. And that suggests a relationship. Yes, a relationship where, you know, God is in charge, God is uh, you know, the important one, but it's still a relationship. And suddenly the, the tone of the, of the psalm uh, changes and it becomes more intimate. And we're now talking about God, the Lord, not just explaining and revealing himself in nature and, and, and you know, the big world universe that we live in. But now it's a God, a Lord, who's taken, if you like, the trouble to reveal himself in scripture in a much more intimate way. And, and the psalmist cannot cannot help but you know, rhapsodise about how wonderful this is. Now, if you were, I don't know if you remember, no you won't because you're not on yet, but, but there was a time when, when adverts were just pretty straightforward. You know, now adverts are, you know, you have to work a little bit to, to see what the advert is telling you about uh, the, the product. But there was a time when adverts were really straightforward. You know, so product X is fantastic. Product X is fast. Product X is, uh, I don't know, is, is big. I don't know, product X is small. I mean, whatever they wanted to tell you, they just told you, didn't they? They just wrote it. Well, this is a bit like the Bible is product X. Poetically, but you look at the way in which the, the, the psalmist is, is 
extolling the virtues of the Bible and the way that God uh, speaks to it. There are six, if you actually look at it, um, there are there are six uh, things that the uh, psalmist wants to say. So there are six names um, that he gives the, the Bible or God's word. So the testimony, the precepts, the commandments, uh, and so on. There are six and there are six descriptions, and there are six effects. Let me just read the descriptions and the effects. I want you to imagine, you know, this product that the that the psalmist is, is telling us about. So the product is perfect, trustworthy, right, radiant, clean, uh, true. It revives the soul. These are these are the impacts of it now. It revives the soul. It makes wise and simple. It gives joy to the heart. It gives light to the eyes. It endures forever. And, and I'll summarise the last bit saying it's able to create the right desires in you. But the language that's used, I love this, the drippings of the honeycomb, you know, it's just dripping over. Just, you know, this just it's just so wonderful. You know, uh, this honey, there's so much of it. You know. uh, this product, if you like, is the best ever. That's how... That's how the psalmist sees the Bible. It is that wonderful. The words of God are that wonderful. And, and, and now the, the psalmist is saying God wants to, uh, this, this great God who made the heavens, wants to come and have a relationship with us through his word that is this wonderful. And if only you can, you know, if only you read the Bible and you, you, uh, you, know, you, you absorb God's word, then, then this this will be what it's like. You know, it revives your soul. It makes it makes you wise. It gives you gives you joy. It gives light to your eyes. It will endure forever, and it will create the right desires, the desire for God and for His righteousness and His truth in you. That is how wonderful it is. So this now is is the next level of revelation that that actually God wants us to have that kind of wonderful relationship with Him through His Word. Uh, I, I quoted this at the beginning, but Peter, in 2 Peter 1 verse 19, calls um, God's word the prophetic word, and he's including the New Testament, and he calls it a lamp shining in a dark place. That is, that is what the Bible does for us, um, including the New Testament. So, uh, so, I've called this speech, when I was thinking about it, speech and truth. There's, there's this wonderful, true speech, words of God in, in the Bible. But also, of course, it's, uh, it's very good for, um, you know, for practical guidance then. You know, if it's that wonderful, then surely we can use it day by day. And yes, we can. You look at verse 11. Moreover, by then is your servant warned. It is also very practical. It will tell us what not to do and what to do. It's incredibly practical. And in keeping them, there is great reward. You know, if you take the effort... It will be worth it. So this wonderful, this wonderful book, the Bible, which is full of God's truths and full of God's relationship with us, is also incredibly practical. So get and use it. So um, that's uh, that's that next level of revelation. So uh, there were the, the things. So we've got the um, we've got God and our Lord. We've got the truth. That's wonderful truth in the Bible. But we've also got. A very, very practical uh, guidance for us.
Now we're going to do the last bit now, we'll do the same again. Um, I've called it uh, the Lord in our life, it's the way that the psalmist responds. So I will read again, and uh, if you would respond. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have the meaning over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. What I think the I think the first response of the psalmist to the revelations of God is humility. We were talking about the heavens making us feel small. Um, I think he I think he responds in humility, and in humility uh, he realizes certain things. Um, I think he he realizes his need for salvation. Um, declaring innocent from hidden faults, he says he. He understands, he understands that, that his relationship with God is broken. He understands that he is a rebel. He understands that he's a sinner. Um, he probably understands, and, and if this, you know, maybe it was David you know, who wrote the psalm. He understands that, that people don't necessarily see that. You know, um, David and the great king, you know, people wouldn't have, wouldn't have seen, that wouldn't have been what they would have first thought about when they saw him, but he knows. He knows that actually, um, as Alistair was saying earlier, he doesn't live up to his own standards, let alone God's. I'm sure that's what he thought. Um, so he understands that. And he understands also, not only that he needs God's salvation, and he needs God to declare him innocent uh, from these sins, but he also needs God's help then to keep going. Because he knows he's weak. He knows he will fall prey to temptation. So he says, keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. He knows he's going to fall again and again and again. And he wants God's help. So in his humility, he asks for salvation. In his humility, he asks um, for God's help. He knows he's dependent on God. Um, and he says, uh, he says, keep me. And then lower down, he says, he calls God my rock. He needs God's help uh, to keep going. Um, but also, he understands that, uh, that there will be a, a relationship with God. He will work at that relationship. So he says, and, um, and there are lots and lots of um, songs and hymns based on Psalm 19, but I keep thinking Boney M at this point. Um, <laughs> let, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. He wants a relationship with God that will come if God um, accepts him in his sin. Um, and, and that he, he wants not only a relationship of, of, you know, of words, there will be words, there will be occasions when, when he will, either on his own or with other people, he will proclaim God's praise or he will confess his sins, but also he wants that ongoing meditation in his heart. He wants to reflect on God and to think about God. Um, and he wants, he wants God then to respond um, to him. So he wants to be acceptable in God's sight. Um, he wants God to be his rock and his redeemer. I quoted, um, oh, I've mentioned uh, 
Paul in Romans 10 earlier, um, and in uh, Romans 10 verse 18, uh, Paul actually quotes Psalm 19. But just before that, and, and I think when, Psalm, when Paul was writing this, he quotes from Deuteronomy, so he must be thinking about Deuteronomy, but Psalm 19 and Deuteronomy 30 verse 14 have similarities, and he's clearly thinking about Psalm 19 as well. So in Romans 10, uh, verses 8 to 12, um, I'll pick up some of what uh, Paul writes. He writes, the word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. There's that idea again. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart, one believes and is justified, and with the mouth, one confesses and is saved. And then he goes on, and I think this is interesting, he then goes on and says, there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all. That's the same idea, isn't it, that the psalmist was thinking about when he thought about creation speaking to all nations, to all people across the whole world. And, and then uh, Paul goes on and quotes Psalm 19. So I think he had Psalm 19 as well as Deuteronomy very much in the front, forefront of his mind as he was writing here. And he was seeing that what the psalmist uh, was thinking about uh, God's revelation being for all people, but wanting it especially to mean something to him, that is, in a sense, what is possible because of Jesus. So what Paul is saying is that in Jesus, we can, uh, we can confess and be saved in the way that the psalmist wanted. Um, we, can, we can meditate on God and know him fully in the way that the psalmist wanted. And also in the way that the psalmist understood and wanted, this message is for everybody. In Jesus, in Jesus there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all. Um, anybody from anywhere, if they confess with their mouth and believe in their heart uh, that God raised Jesus from the dead, they will be saved. So in the New Testament, you get the, the you know the, the ultimate fulfilment of what the the psalmist uh, saw and hoped for. I think this is a wonderful, wonderful psalm. And uh, I said to Christian, I'm sorry if it was a bit of an obvious one to choose, but. Uh, but, you know, in what it tells us about the God of creation, in what it tells us about the God of the Bible, in what it tells us about the God who is our salvation, it is, you know, if you like, as, as C.S. Lewis said at the start, you know, it, is, it is the best. It's the best. It's, it's right up there at the top. So uh, that's why I chose to speak about it. And I hope you've been um, as encouraged as I have been, you know, as I've studied it in, in something of, of what we've spoken about this morning. Shall we pray? Dear Lord, thank you for this wonderful psalm. Thank you for um, the psalm that, uh, that tells us about the God of creation, the Lord of the Bible, the Lord of covenant and relationship, but also about Jesus and, uh, and his, uh, his work on the cross and his redemption. Uh, that although the psalmist couldn't have imagined was the fulfilment of everything that he hoped uh, and, and dreamed for. Thank you that the Bible is so wonderful. Help us to take it really seriously. 
Thank you that the world is so wonderful. Help us to appreciate it fully. But thank you most of all that you died for us and you died for all. Help us to show our appreciation of that in our life and in our witness and to understand that your words are for everybody, that nobody is beyond uh, your ability to save. Thank you, Lord. Amen.